0: For the board of directors from NACRJ, right. who obviously needs no introduction, to introduce Dr. West. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mara. Can we give Mara a hand for just making this a fabulous conference? And Nahima, the wonderful songstress and actress uh, from the Bay Area. Yeah It's a new day, It's a new life. And I can see it in your faces. It's so good to be here. And it's extra special good to have the task of introducing none other than brother Cornell West. <laughs> wow, wow. Um, Cornell may not remember this. But one of the reasons I'm standing here today and as involved in the restorative justice movement as I am is because of Cornell. I was feeling this... yearning after 45 years of being an angry activist filled with rage, of being a a, a trial lawyer, fighting discrimination in the courtroom, fighting against racism, against capitalism, against sexism, against imperialism. And I reached a point where I was starting to feel out of balance. And you were the first person I called because I knew that I needed an infusion of more spiritual energies in my life. And you model that for me in the black prophetic justice tradition. So, you know, I call, I've been thinking about calling you, thinking about, going to call my sister and ask if she could get in touch with you. But I, I decided just to call you in your office one day, and you picked up the phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. And I told you my story. And Cornell, you said, when I said, I said, I need, I would need to shut down my law practice. I would need to take a totally different turn in my life. This would be a major transformation for me that I could not take lightly. And he said, do it, sister, do it. So I did it. Thank you, Cornell. <laughs> yeah. And normally I wouldn't do this, you know, read from a resume, but His his resume got some stuff in it, I'm telling you, that I want to share a little bit of, not the whole thing. Colonel West is a prominent and provocative democratic uh, intellectual. He is a professor of philosophy and Christian practice at Union Theological Seminary and professor emeritus at Princeton University. He has also taught at Yale, Harvard, and the University of Paris. He is best known for his classics, Race Matters and Democracy Matters, and for his memoir, Brother Brother West, Living and Loving Out Loud, Living and Loving Out Loud. His most recent releases, Black Prophetic Fire and Radical King, were received with critical acclaim. He is a frequent guest on the Bill Maher show, Colbert Report, CNN, C-SPAN, and Democracy Now!, Last, but certainly not least, I want to share something with our youth. Well, our youth, that is those of you who are 20 and under, would you stand, please? Yeah. Yeah, great. Great. That's it. Yeah. We want to honor you for being here. And we want to apologize for not always making our uh, conferences as youth-friendly as they might be. We are working on that. We will change that. Uh, But this session that you are about to experience is going to be very youth-friendly. And you should know that Dr. Cornell West has made three spoken word albums, three spoken word albums, collaborating with Prince. Jill Scott, Andre 3000, Talib Kwele, and others. So please welcome this amazing man spirit to the podium. Yay! Woo! Yay, Cornell!
1: Look out now, he's gonna oh, tear it up. Oh, Lord. We love Fania Davis. Our dear sister, give it up for our dear sister, Fania Davis. Professor, Dr. Fania Davis. Oh, Lord. What a blessing it is for me to be here. And it is true that uh, when any of the Davises call, I come running. Because for me, the Davis family, they constitute black nobility. For me, greatness has to do with he or she who's willing to be a servant, a servant of the people, the servant of the weak and the vulnerable, the servant of those who are catching hail, and having one family, Angela and Fanya at the same time. That's radical democratic royalty. That's what it is. That's like Aretha and Carolyn Franklin in the same family. (laughs) Uh, Sheila and Wanda Hutchison in the emotions in the same family. It's almost cosmic unfairness when you have that kind of unbelievable intelligence, imagination, dedication, willingness to live, but also a willingness to die for justice, which means justice is not some abstract thing. It's a force that sits at the very center of who they are. It's an existential process. It's a social process. It is a historical process. I want to salute my new friend and brother, Michael Gilbert, for his magnificent leadership. Give it up. Give it up for I do it. <laughs> uh-huh. he is, though. Uh-huh. I want to salute my new friend and sister, Myra Schiff. Thank you so very much for your work. So, and I want to accent the, the degree to which my dear brother Mark Thaler has been such a magnificent presence. I don't know whether he's here or not, but let's give it up for brother Mark. Give it up for brother Mark. And last but not least, I come from a tradition in which the spirit will not descend without song. And we just heard magnificent song from Naima from the East Bay, from Oakland. Give it up. Our dear sister Naima, and of course you all recognize that name, Naima, you can't hear that name and not think of the greatest artist of the 20th century, John Coltrane's Love Supreme, and they were the dynamic duel of John and Naima Coltrane, and then it was John and Alice Coltrane, and of course to invoke John Coltrane is to remind us of how we started this morning. We started with the drums. Those drums were banned when Africans were brought over on slave ships, 244 years of white supremacy slavery. Why were those drums banned? Not just because they had modes of communication that might enable and empower each other, but they were banned because they had something to do with the preciousness of black humanity. And if somehow, You can do away with those drums. Maybe you can convince these dignified people that they're less beautiful and less moral and less intelligent. That's the vicious legacy of white supremacy. But what did black folk do? They they formed a circle. They formed a circle. You see restorative justice encounter circle. Lo and behold, all we got to do is look deep into the traditions of resistance. Of indigenous peoples and other peoples who have been subordinated and taught to hate themselves. We stole away at night, which next to the water, next to the sheds, and we held hands in a ring shout in a circle for what? to follow the anthem of a blues people, to lift our voices, assert our humanity, not putting others down, but ensuring that we're on a continuum with the rest of humanity, no matter how many lies were told about us by white supremacist authority. Those drums that we heard today with those talented young artists brought back what Needs to be accented in this Ferguson moment, in this Baltimore moment, in this Staten Island moment, in this Oakland moment, in this Cleveland moment, in this Dayton moment. It's shot across the country. What is it? It's not just about arbitrary police power. It's losing sight of the preciousness and pricelessness of a slice of humanity who happened in this case to be black. But it could be indigenous brothers and sisters. It could be women. It could be gay brothers and lesbian sisters and bisexuals and trans. It could be Jewish brothers and sisters. It could be Arab. It could be Muslim. It could be Palestinian. It's a human thing. But these structures of domination and forms of oppression, trying to convince folk on the inside that they belong in a secondary and tertiary slot, as opposed to being in the circle. That's why I salute each and every one of you. Because you all still have the audacity of one of the darkest times. A time in which nuclear catastrophe is escalating with the Cold War coming back. A time in which ecological catastrophe is impending if we don't stop corporate greed to somehow quit squeezing out of nature every little ounce of energy to make profit. If we don't come to terms with the chickens coming home to roost, as Brother Malcolm used to say. You can't socially neglect folk. You can't economically abandon folk generation after generation and think somehow they're not going to bounce back and there'll never be enough police. There'll never be enough prisons to deal with that kind of despair. We need to wake up. Restorative justice movement says America, wake up. The world, wake up. So I want to begin on a personal note. I am who I am because somebody loved me. Oh, yes. Somebody cared for me. Somebody kept track of me, attended to me. I love how the Isley brothers put it when they talk about the freedom movement. It's a caravan of love. And I come from a people who've been terrorized for 400 years, traumatized for 400 years, stigmatized for 400 years. But we've taught the world a whole lot about love in the face of being hated. We've taught the world a whole lot about justice, though we've been treated unjustly. And we didn't do it in the name of creating some kind of Counter terrorist group in the face of terrorism, you got Frederick Douglass, you got Sojourner Truth, you got Harriet Tubman. They said, "We want freedom for everybody, even though you enslave us now." Well, Ida B. Wells Barnett in the face of American terrorism, Jim and Jane Crow every. Two and a half days for 50 years it was some black man, a woman, a child hanging from some tree. That strange fruit, some southern trees bad at the great Billy Holiday from Baltimore City. Sing about it in the Jewish brother Mary Paul writing the lyrics. What you got to say, Ida, you got a bounty on your head. Oh, I come from a people who believes in restorative justice to the degree to which we don't want to terrorize others, no. We just want freedom for everybody. But it's going to begin on the chocolate side of town. That doesn't mean that our vanilla brothers and sisters aren't on the same human continuum. But in America, it's so fashionable to love everybody but black people. Everybody but brown people. Everybody but red people. You can even be highly successful and of color and do well as long as you don't put a priority on Jamal and Letitia catching hell or Juanita or Juan catching hell. That's the degree to which the vicious legacy of white supremacy still generates forms of denial and evasion and avoidance. And what does it do? It reconstitutes in a very deep way the cake of indifference. One of the great prophetic figures of the 20th century, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel used to say, indifference the evils, more evil than evil itself. Because it creates whole ways of life, whole modes of being. You turn your back on those catching hell. There's no other way to account for the last 40 years of massive transfer of wealth from poor and working people to the well-to-do. Used to be 1% of the population had 21% of the wealth. Today, 1% of the population have 40% of the wealth. 22% now of the children in America live in poverty the richest nation in the history of the world. It's a moral abomination. It's spiritually obscene. 40% of precious children of color live in poverty in the richest nation in the history of the world. All of the talk about education won't get to the problem unless you also acknowledge the degree to which the level of wealth inequality, the level of the inability of our precious people to gain access to some resources. We got to hit that head on. We learn from Finland, we learn from Norway, we learn from Sweden, where they got poverty levels of 2%, 3%, and we wonder why Finland leads the world in education. It's not because. It's not solely because they have 98% of their teachers and superintendents unionized. So it can't be the teachers' union getting in the way. The way teachers' unions are demonized in our society. No, no, they have a different conception of justice. Now, I come from a tradition of black people. always believed that any justice that's only justice soon degenerates into something less than justice. You need something deeper. You need something richer. We call it spirituality. You could call it piety. Because piety is not blind obedience to authority. It's not just following religious superegos. Piety is the Sankofa bird. Piety is looking back, gaining access to the best of those who came before that constitute wind at your back in the present. It's an acknowledgment of the sources of good in your existence, in your short move from mama's womb to tomb. And I've been blessed in my own life. The highest title I will ever receive is being the second son of the late Clifton and the present Irene B. West. That's the West family, you see, of being the product of Shiloh Baptist Church. In those days, we had pastors, not CEOs. That's very important. We had servants of the people. We had prison ministries, not just huge building funds. We had choirs, not just praise teams. We had life's transformation in the deepest level. We didn't have just titillation and stimulation. We didn't have prosperity gospel. We had a gospel to learn how to be a blessing so that all the gifts that you have will be given to others and when you come to your end, you'll be so used up that like a smile, like B.B. King, you no longer can move. But people will always remember how you were able to touch their souls enough to allow them to keep on pushing in the language of a gentle genius from the west side of Chicago named Curtis Mayfield. Just keep on pushing. So it's not any matter of having hope. Be a hope. It's not even just a matter of somehow... Viewing justice as a quality you possess. Be justice. And my tradition says justice is what love looks like in public. Because the only thing that can rescue justice is in fact the love, but it's a deep love, a steadfast commitment to the well-being of others of any color, any sexual orientation, any civilization, any culture. But it begins with the least of these begins with those friends Fanon called the wretched of the earth. So I want to begin with an apple graph. I haven't really got to my talk yet. No no no. No y'all got me on fire. That's just prologue. That's just prologue. <laughs> No, I mean, you all are a wonderful group. I'm telling you, just to be among you all is a magnificent. And I'm just so sorry I can't stay. My birthday is tomorrow. And it's one of Well, you appreciate it. But as I told my sister, my dear sister, it's one of the few days I like to steal away and spend time with my family and things. You know what I mean? I was with Mom yesterday in Sacramento, and I got to get up to 122nd Street tonight. Because on my birthday, I like to boogie down. So I'm going to be with y'all in spirit, but just know I'm break, I'm, I'm, break I'm cutting the rug on my birthday, 62 years young. Lord have mercy. But I want to begin with an epigram from the greatest of all public intellectuals. And I'm not talking about the great John Dewey, as grand as he was. I'm not talking about Edmund Wilson. I'm not talking about Susan Sontag, a Lionel Trilling, as magnificent as they were. I'm talking about W. B. Du Bois. Oh, in 1957, W.B. Bois is 89 years old, and he's still on fire. And he's living in Brooklyn, the greatest borough in the world. And he's under implicit house arrest. And he's got a little small restorative circle, because the only visitor he can have is another great freedom fighter named Paul Robeson who was the most popular Negro in the world in 1939, but he's under house arrest in Philadelphia in 1957. And it's just the four of them. W.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, Sister Essie, and Sister Shirley, the two wise, towering figures in their own right. I was blessed, actually, to study with Shirley Graham Du Bois, who was the second wife of the great Du Bois when she taught at Harvard in 1971. My God, she was magnificent. But Du Bois says, I want to write a love letter to the younger generation, 89 years old, and it will take the form of a trilogy of three novels. Can you imagine 89 years old? And he embarks on the writing of three novels? That's how much he loved the people. That's how dedicated he was, the quality of his commitment. It reminds you a little bit of Brother Martin Luther King, Jr., when he was in that paddy wagon a four and a half hour, all by himself with a German shepherd in the dark. Brother Andrew Young tells me when he got out, he could hardly walk, looked like he had a nervous breakdown, but all he could say was, this is the cross we must bear for the freedom of our people. That's the level of commitment that we're talking about. And Du Bois, in his first novel, The Ordeal, of man's art. Oh, what a powerful statement. You turn to page 275 in that novel. He says, I've been wrestling with four questions all my life, and the four questions inform our attempt to sustain just and loving communities, our attempt to embody and enact restorative justice. First question, how shall integrity face oppression? How shall integrity face oppression? Now, we know we live in an age of cupidity, an age of mendacity, an age of criminality. So to even talk about integrity makes you countercultural. That's what's so fascinating about this group. You know, we, we can form our circle and say, you know, integrity still has gravitas. <laughs> You've got to be kidding What's the payoff? Because that's the kind of human being I choose to be. Because I'm willing to raise the question. We all are willing to raise the question. What does it really mean to be human? In our English word, "human" derives from the Latin "humando," and "humando" means what? Burying and burial. That we're beings toward. Death and the paradox of life is what? Learning how to die in order to learn how to live before you physically die. And restorative justice in so many ways is a matter of trying to convince us to engage in forms of Death, or we give up certain assumptions and presuppositions, we give up certain prejudices and prejudgments, Anytime any time you give it up, turn it loose, the way James Brown talked about it. You give up that dogma, give up that prejudice, give up that presupposition. You are in the process of being reborn, in the process of growing, you're in the process of developing. But we live in an American civilization that is fearful of death. That's why you can turn the U.S. Constitution, there's no reference to social death, which is white supremacist slavery. How are you going to have a Constitution inaugurating your experiment and no acknowledgement of a fundamental precondition of your democracy? 22% of the inhabitants of the 13 colonies are enslaved, generating the wealth, which is the precondition of your democracy. And what do you say about precious indigenous peoples whose land you already have dispossessed? That's denial. Denial of social death. One of the fundamental challenges every generation in America is do we have the capacity to shatter denial, which is tied to the indifference and callousness that I've talked about. You, see, you hear all the talk over and over again. America is the land of immigrants. That's a lie. America has a rich tradition of voluntary immigrants. Yes, and we love them. There were some involuntary folk who came here, and there were some folk already here. And if you're going to be truthful, and the condition of truth is always to allow suffering to speak. That's intellectual integrity. If you're really concerned about a quest for truth when it comes to the human condition, then you're going to have to affirm the, the anthem of the blues people. You're going to have to allow every voice to be lifted. And it can't be selectively highlighting the echoes that reinforce your interest. you got to allow for the voices to be raised as a challenge that do unsettle, that do unhouse, that do unnerve us. I love the presentation, my dear brother Dominique. Give it up for brother Dominique again. He did a wonderful job. But magnificent. But he was talking about this sense of being unsettled. It takes me back in so many ways to my own tradition. That I had decided when I was eleven years old that when it came to issues of integrity, I want to be true to the voices of Adani Hathaway or Nina Simone. A David Ruffin, a Sarah Vaughan. Why? Because in their sound, in the horn of a Train, the piano playing of a Mary Lou Williams, they constitute a circle in which they can raise the voices, and black people could be free in the music, even if it couldn't be translated into structures and institutions. And that music would constitute a way in which we would be sustained in the face of catastrophe, but in the responding to catastrophe, we would have the unbelievable courage of Emma Teal's mother when she stepped to the lantern after her baby had been terrorized by cowardly white supremacists, cowardly American terrorists. Miss Teal, what you got to say to the world? Your only baby has been Fetched from the Tallahatchie River, you kept the casket open in Roberts Temple Church of God in Christ in Chicago in August of 1955, three months before another freedom fighter named Rosa Parks sat down on a bus in order to stand up for freedom. Miss Teal, what you got to say? She stepped to the lectern with tears on her face and what does she tell the world? I don't have a minute to hate. I will pursue justice for the rest of my life. How do you say it, Miss Teal? What kind of strength do you have? What kind of spiritual fortitude allows you to stand there with such grace and dignity, look down and see your child and still not hate? Oh, my God, what a message for the world. We're not just talking about the best of black people. We're not just talking about the best of America. We're talking about the best of the human spirit. That's what restorative justice is about. That's where you really test it. And that's the blues. Because the blues is... A narrative of catastrophe, lyrically expressed, but in the face of catastrophe, you still keep a love and a smile. We just lost the king of the blues, B.B. King. You all know his song, Nobody Loves Me But My Mom," and She Might Be Jiving Too. And that's the B-side of the thrill is gone. That's catastrophe. Strange fruit. Catastrophe. What the best of black people do. Already prefigured restorative justice. Already constituted circles that your hope is not unbroken. That's what... Miss The sister from Chicago. What's her name? It's a staple. Mavis. That's, amazing. That's what she's talking about, the unbroken circle. Meaning what? Not that people won't betray you, not that human beings are not fallible, but they will aspire to an answer to Du Bois' first question. How shall integrity face oppression? And of course, the flip side is, echoes of Emma Thiel, she would rather be defeated momentarily and lose at the moment than win just to be like the gangsters who gangsterize her baby. That's a spiritual question. That's a moral question. That's a choice of wanting to be in the world in a certain kind of way, not just to be an overnight winner. And in the cultural superficial specter it's superficial uh, 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 spectacle in the United States is very much all about winning. And this is a challenge of our younger generation. Because we've told the younger generation for the last 40 years that people struggled for justice, gave up everything, blood, sweat, and tears, just to produce successful folk. As if just having a major position, status, wealth, power, and well-adjusted to injustice is a form of success. No, no, I come from a people that said, don't just show me how successful you are. I want to know what you're faithful to. What are you going to use your success for? And these are part of the repercussions these days. The last 40 years, we've been so obsessed with breaking the glass ceiling, breaking the glass ceiling, first black, first brown, first red, first warmer. That's fine, those are various efforts to undermine white supremacy and male supremacy and so forth. But we know black faces in high places don't necessarily translate into restorative justice. Oh, we know that's the case. But all these black folk getting shot last 10 years, every 28 hours, there's a black and brown person shot. We got black president, black attorney general, black cabinet secretary, Homeland Security and not one policeman going to jail, there is a hemorrhaging taking place. It doesn't translate. I call it a key sweat moment. Something, something just ain't right. It's not a matter of trashing black elected officials. It's a matter of keeping track of the structures and the institutions. And those structures and institutions are not just in the political and the economic sphere. They're in the cultural, the individual, and the spiritual sphere. Decrepit education generating too many soul murders every day. And the neoliberal agenda, which is always threefold. Financialize, privatize, militarize. Bring in the big money from big banks, big corporations, big NGOs, privatize it, and then make sure you can keep the order. Militarize it. That's why our elementary schools so often look like airports. I'm on my way to the airport. I got to go through security. So many precious young folk got to go through security every day. And when they get in there, what happens? We know rich kids get taught and poor kids get tested. And those schools don't have arts programs. So we wonder why so many of our young folk can make a million dollars and still not be able to sing in tune. (laughs) Carmen McRae turns over in her grave. Nat Teen Cole, Johnny Hartman, turns over in their grave. They sang in pitch. (laughs) Not just for the money. Because they were imitating somebody else who did, and they wanted to ascend to their level, you see. That's why so many of our precious young folk, I spend a lot of time in the studios with hip-hop artists, and I tell them up front, look, I'm old school. I'm deeply old school. see, Luther Vandross was an original. (laughs) But we have a culture where young folk are taught to be copies, you see. So that conformity trumps courage. And the only risk you take is for the next career move, not for the cause. And so even the freedom movements itself just become commercials or advertisements. Or what what's the language these days? A brand. Somebody told me the other day, Brother West, what's your brand? I ain't got no brand. <laughs> I don't. I'm a revolutionary Christian. I ain't got no brand. Oh, I got to make money and I survive. not know that about that. Because I've been married a couple of times. I got some challenges. <laughs> so, so most of the money not for me. That's all right. That's all right. I love my family. All of them. <laughs> but it ain't a brand. And once the money determines what you say, once the money determines what you can do, you already bought off. That's called venality. The boys call for integrity. That's what I love about you all. You all still have the audacity to aspire to integrity, cutting radically against the grain. That second question the boys raised: What does honesty do in the face of deception? Just be an honest person becomes countercultural. Reminds me of James Ball in that last line, in notes of a native son. He says, all I aspire to be is a writer who laughs like Hemingway and an honest man, an honest man. You can't talk about restorative justice. You can't talk about the magnificent cause. I was reading my dear sister, find this magnificent reflection on the call for truth and reconciliation process. Some public space where suffering, it's loud to speak. Voices are raised in the dark or in the light. Doesn't make any difference. Doesn't make any difference. No, you see, I come from a church. We can see Jesus in the dark or the light. Doesn't make any difference. Don't make no difference. It's not a matter of the context. We can keep track of the humanity of poor folk in the light or the dark. Doesn't make any difference. Even though could somebody turn them on, right quick, just in case. <laughs> I think somebody just leaning that little gangster lean. That's all right. That's all right, my brother, brother. We love you. We love you. That's all right. That's all right. Nothing wrong with a gangster lean in Florida. Do <laughs> you all get what I'm talking about? How do we transmit and bequeath to our precious young folk? To be human. I'm looking at that brilliant brother who raised the question in the circle. You know the one I'm talking about. Raise your hand, brother. That's right. I'm talking about you. I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you, brother. That's right. But not just you, but you. Right now, why? Because... To aspire to integrity and try to be an honest person means you're going to have to be nonconformist. You're going to have to learn how to be maladjusted to some of your peers who are not doing the right thing. Because if you just become well-adjusted, you find yourself locked into a mediocrity and the, your gifts will not be able to surface in the way in which they ought. You understand what I'm talking about, brother? Yours. Yeah, there you go. Oh, very important. The great ones who came before, they were all maladjusted. They were misfits. They didn't fit in. They were what we say about Socrates, etapos. Couldn't find a classification for them. Reminds me what Monk told Coltrane when he had Coltrane right there on the couch. And Coltrane was still imitating Johnny Hodges of the Duke Ellington band. And Monk started playing the Epistrophe, and Coltrane said, that sounds wrong. And Monk said, sometimes wrong is right. <laughs> you have to be able to learn the rules and then subvert the rules. You have to know, master the tradition and then revolutionize the tradition the way Chopin did in classical music, or Beethoven and Mozart did in the European context. Yes, the way Sondheim has done in the musical theater. Learn the rules from Rogers and Hammerstein and Hart, and then subvert it with all that darkness. Yes. Oh, yes. That's part of our movement. That's courage. That's integrity. That's honesty. Third question. I'm going to move on quickly. Great divorce raised. What does decency do in the face of insult? Because you can't talk about the precious human beings that we have a love affair with. We're concerned about, committed to their well-being without coming to terms with what kind of armor do they have in the face of the bombardment of insults and attacks and assaults on their humanity, on their beauty, on their intelligence. You see. We have to be willing to be very candid about how difficult that is. That also is a matter of culture and spirit. It's again an existential process because it's so easy to fall into a, a situation in which you drink constantly from the cup of bitterness. One of them I've been blessed to spend good time in Ferguson and in Baltimore, and I tell my precious young brothers and sisters with their marvelous new militancy that is sweeping the country. I said, you all have the same question we had, the same question in the 30s. How do you channel your rage through love and justice rather than hatred and revenge? That's the fundamental question. It's a difficult one. Loving the people, not just the people who look like you. And I'm a Christian, so I love my enemies. Now, don't try that one on your own. Need a lot of grace for that. I know I got some folk in in here from Trinity, so they know what I'm talking about. But there's nothing wrong with being a love warrior. Reminds me, called Rowan, called Brother Martin, and said, Martin, you're committing suicide by coming out against the war. You know that 72% of Americans disapprove of you, and 55% of black people disapprove of your critique of the American empire. What did Martin say? He said, anybody who aspires to be a good man never has enough enemies. Brother Carl Rowan didn't know what to do about that one. Steal away and had another cognac. (laughs) Martin wasn't perfect. We're not talking about perfection. He wasn't pure. We're not talking about purity. We're talking about humanity. But there's something called courage to aspire to integrity and honesty and and decency. The last question of Du Bois, how does virtue meet brute force? Oh, that's the difficult one. That's the most difficult one because it's so easy in some ways to talk about justice. But lo and behold, when the FBI shows up at your house, When the CIA starts lying on you, when they attack you, your family, and your livelihood, then the question becomes, are you still willing to stay on the love train, the love of justice, of neighbor? How much are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to sacrifice your popularity for integrity? are you willing to pay for some the ultimate price. And I do believe that we're living in a moment where there's a possibility of shifting from social motion and social momentum to a social movement. We're not yet at a social movement, but we're headed there. America doesn't experience that, but every 30 or 40 years, You have that kind of democratic awakening where people are concerned about public interest and common good, concerned about something bigger than just their own narcissistic egos or their own tribalistic constituencies. And, of course, these days we have to be global. We should have been global from the very beginning. From the very beginning with the global capitalist economy and the TPP, our dear president, trying to fast-track the TPP to reshape the world in the image of corporate Interest with no transparency, hardly at all, and got the nerve to have Martin Luther King Jr. looking at him every day in the Oval Office. That burns me up. That makes me upset. Well, brother, well, she got to be light on the president. Don't be coming down to the president all the time. I love the brother as a human being. But the choices that anybody makes, I don't care what color the president is. If it overlooks the plight of working people and poor people of all colors, we ought to have righteous indignation and holy anger and moral outrage. That's in part what restorative justice is also about. And we've had a tremendous time in the last seven years trying to talk about justice on the one hand and protect the black president against right-wing lies and vicious attacks of Fox News and others. But at the same time, Wall Street dominates. Drones still dropping bombs on innocent folk. Massive surveillance still taking place. You see, hardly a sustained critique, especially from the black community. Yet we know the issue of class is crucial here. If young, precious black people, or upper middle class—I'm talking about the Jack and Jill brothers and sisters. If they were going to jail at the same level as our precious black poor young people, we'd have different kind of black leadership. Very different kind of black leadership. And we got towering figures from the past. The door Irene Height, middle class in her achievement, but always said, lift as you climb. The measure of what you do has to begin with the least of these. Benjamin May said the same thing. We're not just talking about your class origin. We're talking about the orientation of your soul, the orientation of your spirit. And if you're locked into a little narrow bottle, a class bottle, and have little to say or any organic connection to poor and working peoples, we end up where we are right now, where things have gotten relatively better for the middle classes, even though they're more and more devastated since 2008, but so much worse for the poor and working people, and especially the poor and working youth. I tell the young folk all the time, just put a smile on their face. I say, you know, it's very interesting when I look at the musical landscape. I say, Where are your dramatics, or delphonics, or enchantment, or the whispers of the Jones girls? Can y'all get on the stage all together and lift your voices as smooth and subtle and sweet and gentle the way the mighty Dales used to do it? That's an interesting question. Where is your band? The Roots is the last band for the younger generation, and they're on television. Blending voices on a stage has something to do with restorative justice in circles and lifting voices to organize and mobilize. They try to convince young folk, the only way you will ever make it is in a narrow individualistic mode. Just be concerned about yourself solely. And they end end up imitating what goes on on Wall Street, which is obsession with the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get caught. That's what it is. All the crimes committed inside of trading, market manipulation, fraudulent activity since 2008. How many Wall Street executives went to jail? Zero. Not one. But let one precious youth in East Oakland get caught with a crack bag. Gone straight to jail. Felony on their record. Can't get a job. That's a criminal system. A criminal justice system, which in many ways is a crime against humanity. And we need to call it for what it is. A crime against humanity. Thank God you're reading Michelle Alexander's great text, The New Jim Crow. We keep track, especially the 48% of those in jail for soft drug offenses. 9% of white youth locked into drug addiction, flying high in the friendly sky. 9% of black youth, 65% of convictions black. That's as racist a criminal justice system as it was under Jim Crow, and yet, that Jim Crow Jr. Because it's more subtle, it's more covert, but the effect and consequence is still deeply double standard and deferential. And this is true for our precious brown youth as well, and more and more for our precious poor white, youth, and more and more women, poor and working class. So what do we do? Well, you do exactly what you all do. We create a movement. Come together in power, enable, ennoble each other. Responding to the Bois, we aspire to be the people of integrity, honesty, decency, and virtue. Yeah, we're going to deal with oppression. Yes, we're going to deal with deception. We're going to deal it's brute force, we're going to deal with us, insult and assault. So I salute you all, and I appreciate you allowing me to say these, these few words, and I want to make sure that we have time for call and response, because I, I come out of a tradition I don't believe in just making a presentation without somebody pushing me against the wall. That's the way it ought to be. Thank you all so very much. I appreciate it. Yes, yes,